0: You're listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to Offscript American Theater's podcast on all things theatrical. Also a live Facebook chat as you know if you're if you're tuning in. Uh it's uh, Friday August 26th. I'm Rob Weinert kent the editor-in-chief of American Theater. My pronouns are he, him. And uh, I am coming to you from the land of the Muncie lenape uh, both in my home in Queens and also in my background, which is the La Mama, which is in Manhattan. We're going to have that background up because we're going to talk today to Daniel K. Isaac, wonderful actor and playwright, whose play is about to open there, um, uh, once upon a Korean time. And I'm here with...
0: Allie Pearson. I'm the associate editor here at American Theater. I'm coming to you from the land of the Muncie-Lenape in New Jersey, and my pronouns are she, her. So excited to chat about this play today.
1: Yeah, it's going to be exciting. Um, we've, we've, uh, we'll have we've talk a little bit uh, briefly, just a little, little housekeeping. Um, American Theater is published by uh, Theater Communications Group, TCG, and we rely pretty much entirely on your support to keep doing what we're doing, including this podcast, including the coverage we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, so please, if you don't already, if you're not already a member, please go to americantheaterorg join to support our work. Um, you can join as a full membership or just donate. Uh, every bit helps. Um, that plug out of the way. We have been busy the last couple of weeks, uh, Allie and I, and uh, there seems to be Shakespeare in the air. That seems like summer and Shakespeare seems to be just, they go together. And I, I think that's that's an invention of Joe Papp but in any case um it was it was on my mind a lot of productions out there um I think I was sparked in, in part by uh, I'm reviving a column I used to do called the agenda that I would just write about whatever was on my mind what I'd seen I'm looking at a season that's 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 taking shape over 2022 23 it looks really exciting and heterogeneous and all over the country and there's too much for Ali and I to cover ourselves uh, or to assign a story on each of the shows. So I'm gonna, in this column, do a sort of talk of the town or whatever you wanna, a bunch of items about various shows that have a theme, there'll be a theme sometimes, or sometimes it won't be a theme. This time, the theme that just coalesced was around Shakespeare um, and adaptations of Shakespeare and around the parental questions of, why do we do so much damn Shakespeare in American theater? And is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is Shakespeare really welcoming to all people? Is it really is really Shakespeare, quote, universal? Anyway, those questions are all live in this piece. Um, they were spurred in part by the uh, wonderful podcast uh, uh, that Brian James Polak did interviewing Madeline Sayet, uh, who's a Mohegan, Native American uh, scholar of Shakespeare. And she talks about her journey through loving Shakespeare and then and then realizing he wasn't always the way he's taught. It doesn't always welcome people like her into the, into the dialogue, into the and then starting to question that. Um, I was also. Uh, Looking at As You Like It, what to me, which seems like a, a triumphant, uh, Public Works production at the at the uh, Central Park Delacorte, um, and an old friend and colleague Lori Willoway, who we had talked to when she directed Dream House at Long Wharf. She runs the Public Works program. Spoke to her at length about her background in Cornerstone and one of my favorite, you know, formative theater companies. But also just about what is it about? What? what why does Shakespeare speak so much? Can it speak so much to so many different people? And I, you know, tie that in with my watching my son watch it, uh, which is a special thing. Um, I won't go into detail. You can read the piece, it's really wonderful. I also spoke to, sorry, uh, Upstart Crow Collective, a group from Seattle that does uh, classics with all women and non binary performers. They're doing King John a play most people are not familiar with. Some people question whether Shakespeare actually wrote it, but they're doing it at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. It sounds fascinating. She had a lot of, Rosa Joshi, the director of that production, had a lot of interesting interesting things to say about feeling included and not included in in the canon. Um, And then the other one was Mother Lear, a rather odd production that's happening right now at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden outdoors. And it uses the text of King Lear to talk about dementia. Anyway, these are ways I think answering the question why do we do Shakespeare? Uh, well, it, it's, there's no one answer, and, and I think the answers are in these productions. Um, the other thing, and then I just published today uh, a pot, another podcast, Theatrical Mustang, in which Woodzik um, spoke to two actors who are trans and non-binary who are now doing repertory performances at Utah Shakespeare Festival. Not the place you would expect there to be trans and gender non-conforming performers, but it turns out in reporting this, um, Utah Shakes came out and talked about a number of TGNC performers who had worked there before, including Kevin Cantor and Sophia Metcalf who are there this season. Fascinating, it's a really fascinating. All these all kind of these three different pieces, the two podcasts and my piece, complement each other, I hope, in an interesting way to talk about again, why do classics are, can you queer the classics? Can you quote diversify the classics? It's a conversation that's been going on most of my lifetime and it's still. The fact that it's still going on, it seems like there's still life in it is what I would say. Allie, what else did we write about?
0: <laughs> yeah, going off the, the chat about diversifying the canon and making space, uh, there was a beautiful tribute by writer Sandra Delgado uh, for Mirna Salazar. Uh, she was a fearless advocate of Latino theater artists and the founder of the Chicago Latina Theater Alliance. And she just meant so much to so many people and it's a really beautiful read. Uh, next this week, writer Cassandra Centschitz, uh wrote an interesting take on the production of Devil Wears Prada that's going on right now. Um, a lot of people have mixed feelings about it, but she really does speak about the campiness of the movie and the way in which it's become part of our culture. That's definitely worth taking a look at. And then there's a fun conversation by Miriam Felton Dansky about Sylvan Oswald's Pony, which is a play having its second full production after 11 years at the Portland Theater Festival in Maine right now. It's a murder mystery with a love triangle involving trans men and butch lesbians, and it's definitely worth checking out.
1: Yeah, that's a good piece. That one came about because Miriam actually was, she's a sort of a dramaturg, and I think she runs a program at Bard, and she was actually just interested, can you maybe publish this play? It's a really interesting play. It's like, well, we don't, unfortunately, because we're online, we don't publish plays, so, so we write about it, so... Stories come about in all different ways. Um, I'll just talk about two more before we go to get to talking to Daniel, main event. Um, there's one. Some stories are just come into your inbox, and you're like, "I need to stop everything and go do this story." And one was the story of Irondale Ensemble in Brooklyn, uh, flew in uh, uh, about eight or nine kids from the Ukraine, who they read about, had, did a play in a bomb shelter there, in Lviv. And um, the play is not a direct response to the war, although it's about hardships experienced by young, young kids in Ukraine after the post-Soviet era. It's called Mom on Skype is the play. And it does end with this amazing soulful song by with this, written by this 11 uh, year old girl, uh, Hannah is her name. And uh, anyway, I just like, I have to go talk to these, these girls who literally put on a play while bombs were falling came and brought it to Brooklyn. Um, and the story of how they got visas, they talked They talk to Hakeem Jeffries and Chuck Schumer and expedited their visas, got them out of Poland. There's a lot of drama behind it. And it's also, there's some sweetness in the story. It's, it's just, definitely look at that one. Um, it's inspiring. Um, and Irondale is just a kind of, you know, little engine that could kind of, company that just keeps going after many years. Um, speaking of another, another, uh, company that is um, adjacently dear to my heart. I don't know them personally, but Ojai Playwrights Conference out in Southern California was run for 20 years by Bob Egan, um, who was who I knew as a literary director at the Mark Taper Forum Center Theater Group. And after he left that job, he went and ran this uh, he didn't found it, but he took over pretty soon after it started Ojai Playwrights Playwrights Conference, which has become one of the main or a, a very, a very um, prestigious and powerful and influential uh, new play development place in a time when those are endangered and going away. Uh, we had Margaret Gray, a wonderful writer from Los Angeles. We haven't had a write before, she writes for the LA Times a lot. Um, lovely to, to have her write for us. This She went up and took it and she spoke to Steve Natalie Gurgis about working there. Um, and uh, she gave a sort of tribute to what Bob Egan built there and we'll see what's next for Ohio Playwrights Conference. Um, Speaking of playwrights, I think we can segue now to talking to our honored guest, Daniel K. Isaac. Um, Daniel K. Isaac, of course, is a a Korean-American actor and writer based in New York City. Uh, You may know him from such off-Broadway plays as The Chinese Lady, um, or from uh, the Showtime series, Billions. But he's got a new play that's going up at at La Mama, production of Mayu Theatre Company called Once Upon a Korean Time. I saw it uh, last week. But just this week uh loved it and daniel it's so good to have you thank you for having me here and thank <laughs> you for coming to see the show yeah it's uh yeah i was uh i was mildly blown away by it i would say i I, uh, I not that i didn't expect it to be good but i just i was not prepared for all the many things going on in this play and how ambitious and epic it is it's just a it's a, it's a fantastic play and I think you wanted to ask him the first question. Yeah,
0: sure. Question. I was hoping uh we could talk a little bit about, you know, your writing and, and how you got started. Um uh, I'm hoping you could tell me a little bit about according to my mother and, you know, did writing maybe start as a, a way of, you know, talking with your mom um and where did the show kind of come from for you?
2: Totally. I um I have no formal training in writing. I I think I took an intro to playwriting class in my undergrad at UC San Diego, but otherwise I remember capturing snippets of dialogue just from real life with conversations I had with my mom that I would post on Facebook when <laughs> more of us used to Facebook and I posted them as a way to vent, but also to try to find the, um, the absurdity or the humor in something that was often difficult or traumatic for me in what is still an ongoing contentious relationship between my mother and I. And that uh, then birthed a short film pilot presentation that my friend Kathy Yan approached me to, to um, turn these Facebook posts into uh, a narrative story and something about her approaching me there gave me permission to be a writer, a permission I wasn't giving myself at the time. And that, television project now is still in development. And as it was in whatever phase it was in at it, at that time, I thought, I really love theater and I moved to New York City hoping to do theater. And so why don't I just write for theater and and try expressing myself in that medium as I wait and uh, futz with and continue to adapt this television project and so i i basically wrote a full length play to apply to a writers group to actually maes writers group maes writers lab i believe it was mm-hmm. called at the time and for them they only required you having one full length play and and whatever application questions there were and i uh, i applied I didn't get in, but I did get very kind feedback that said, just apply the next cycle. There were a lot of people who had applied last cycle and, you know, we were letting them in and we believe in you keep going. And so then I thought, where else can I go? And I was in my twenties at this time and ensemble studio theater has a writer's group called young blood for 30 and under playwrights. And for that application process, you needed two full length plays. So I, (laughs) wrote a second full-length play to apply to this writers group because I I didn't have time to go to grad school. And I believe Billions, the early seasons were shooting at this time. And I I didn't really know where else to find community as a, a playwright. And I one of my dear friends, Keeley Gibson, who's going to have his playwriting debut later this season as well, was sort of I call him my fairy godmother or or Sherpa for how to be an emerging playwright in the city. And he'd say, apply for this opportunity and try this one. And so I applied to Youngblood. And those two plays got me into Youngblood. And um, and that's where I feel like I found more footing in at least the discipline of writing and the various creative voices of folks in my generation. And and they're very amazing perspectives and and ways they approach it and tackle whatever voice they're wrestling with at that time and from there i went to page 73's interstate 73 writers group and ma ended up commissioning this play that has been workshopped all over including new york theater workshop and mtc's groundworks lab and uh, a digital production that um or digital workshop we did during the pandemic so that's my long-winded answer of how I came to playwriting.
1: Wow! So you 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 wrote this play. Uh, you dedicated it to your mother, and this is yeah. obviously not this is not based on conversations necessarily. But maybe tell tell us about Once Upon a Korean Time, what it is and and where it came from.
2: It's a big sure. question. Sure, but... I I started with an an interrogation of my own breadth of knowledge of what is considered the Western canon or uh, Greek and Roman mythology and American and European centric history and their perspectives in storytelling and myths and fables and Disney and comics and whatnot. And I asked myself why I didn't know more about the Korean side of those stories or the Korean origin stories and folk tales and fables. And the simplest answer to that would be growing up with a sense of self-hatred about being Korean or Asian or other in what was predominantly a white school in some of my um, educational background. And then just um being ashamed of being a child of immigrants at the time and having lunch boxes that smelled or being teased for the shape of my eyes and mm-hmm. how that led to me not wanting to know more about my my mother's history or the country that I have ancestry in that I don't know much about and and how to find a way to share that journey of of discovery or interrogation I was having with myself and my background. And I think, or what I hope it has resulted in, is also a a question of or a showcasing of how history gets told by the victor and who mm. um who shapes the stories we tell and then the narratives that we consider to be truth or fact. And from what little research, and I am by no means an expert on Korean history, but in my journey of writing this play, I feel that a common thread is whoever was occupying Korea or was considered the, the winner or the leader of whatever war or disruption or colonialism was in place in that time period, got to write the story or got to say what was true or false or who the victors were or not. And... I find that to be a, a sad reality that exists in more than just Korea's history and a uh, common thread would be American intervention in all of these other countries and their stories to tell and their perhaps faiths or origin myths. And I try to cram all that into a 90 minute play. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it strikes me the ambition is is partly that you're you're telling Korean history, some of which a lot of Americans, uh, including of all backgrounds, but especially white Americans don't know the history, but also right. interweaving that with folk tales, which are also unfamiliar. Some of them there are analogs, right? Uh, the Korean right. Cinderella that you talk about. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering about the ambition of sort of interweaving those and 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 getting all the information across. And I, I just so that people who haven't seen or read the play know, there's, it's in five sections, sort of five acts. Right. And the first is set during the fight for independence in 1930, right, from Japan, yeah. right, in mm-hmm. in Korea. Although that's, a, you know, that's, there's not a lot of content about that, but that's where it's set. Um, mm, right. And then and then at a comfort so-called comfort station in the still not well enough known, uh, you know, atrocity of the comfort women who mm-hmm. were like, kidnapped and served as Japanese soldiers during World War II. And then the Korean War section, right, right. is it set during the Korean War, which is the most sort of oblique and abstract of, of them. I, in, my, in my opinion, it was like, it, I was aware that that's where it was set, but I it wasn't as, uh, yeah, in any case, you could talk about that. And then the contemporary, the, sort of the fourth historical section is the 1992 riots in, uh, in LA, which of course right. Korean Americans were in some ways on the front lines of. Um, and then the fifth is a, in a not an epilogue, but it's a, it's a sort of contemporary bringing together of all this just so people know what, what, what the, what the play is, you know, no spoilers right. there, but um, I guess, I mean, one, one dumb question I have is why is the title not when tiger smoked? Cause it's, it'd be a great title. <laughs> right. I, I
2: think I regret that. In yeah. hindsight, that uh, I knew I wanted the audience to know that I was tackling fairy tales or folk right. tales, right. but right. I also knew I, I have written something for adults. I, I like to think of it as a fairy tale for adults and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. try to make that clear with the language and the content. And yes. I think um, long, long ago when tigers used to smoke would be the more apt title. But <laughs> I think what I'm trying to do in, or a younger version of me was trying to do with these parentheses is trying to insert the Korea or the or my history or motherland in what is not um, usually centered were given the spotlight, and so right. I, I took something more familiar and jammed in this word, and yeah. hopefully that does some <laughs> job of of uh, uh, at least the beginning interrogations of or uh, um, themes of this piece. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I love how you've well a that you remember these five chapters as I call <laughs> them, and their different mm-hmm. times and settings. Mm. When I first started, I I didn't know that that was the journey I was going to go on. So I, I was unable to find sort of adult texts about Korean folktales and fairy tales and mythology. And my reading comprehension of Korean is very rusty, whereas I can conversationally survive. And so what I could only really turn to was children's books that had both English and Korean side by side. And what ended up happening was I found old books that I think I might have grown up with through some friends who had um, parents who held their childhood possessions more um, or better than my mom did, Mm -hmm. and also from just going to Korean bookstores and asking if they had any of this material. And so because I was encountering the Korean through children's books, they were clearly meant for a children's audience and yet contained... Grotesque or absurd or often violent images and and aspects to the storytelling, and I wondered if that was an inherently Korean thing, or if, like the Brothers Grimm versus mm-hmm. a Disney interpretation of a fairy tale, if that's what we do in as we sanitize or try to make things more PG or you know G really. So <laughs> right, right. I want I sought to do the opposite. And I remember calling my mother to say, I think I have an idea of two soldiers in a trench telling this story about Hung Bu these two brothers in a popular Korean folktale. What do you think about that? And she said immediately, well, what do you think about comfort women telling the story of Shim She She sort of grasped what I was trying to do and paired another Korean historical thing with a Korean folktale. And then I thought, well, let me pursue this and see what happens. And that's how chapters one and two were born. And what is important for me to note is that my mother had never talked about comfort women before, and she doesn't still really talk about her chapter of life out of the Korean War, other than um, I had heard a story after being assigned an assignment to do a family tree, which I think is what... Easily be able to draw many branches and generations of their tree, but my mom's a divorced woman. I'm an only child, and I didn't have any grandparents, at least in my maternal side, uh, and so there there was no family tree for me to fill in other than my mom and I. And she had, I think, three sisters alive at that time, and so the teacher felt bad and said, "Why don't you draw something else based on another story that you can uh, conduct an interview with your mother to find out?" And so then my mom told me a a little anecdote about her experience in the Korean War and one of them that didn't make the play was that she back in the day before or I guess um, along with outhouses she used to have a porcelain like little toilet that that's how she could go to the bathroom and so when they were fleeing south during the Korean War everyone in her family knew they had to bring this goddamn porcelain toilet to make sure that she would be able to use the restroom as they fled for their lives, which I think is so funny and absurd that they knew that in order for her not to be constipated or to to (laughs) behave on this trip, they had to bring it. And, and at one point while fleeing, they, um, one of her sisters broke it while she was cleaning and she was just a mess of tears. And they, they thought they'd lost her in their, um, escape during this time but really she was hiding because she'd broken my mom's toilet
1: oh, my god!
2: but that one didn't make the play uh, because <laughs> but maybe some other time if you yeah. this is where my literal toilet humor comes from perhaps <laughs> <laughs> but another story she told me was how her town during the air raids before people had fled uh, had dug a, uh, a cave in the hillside so as to hide in so that if the air raids reached their building structures, they at least were safe in the mountains and they assumed the planes wouldn't strike them there. Mm. And I've learned since that that's a rather common thing, or if not common, then at least other places did this same thing. But my mother was afraid of the dark and she never went during these drills or when there were actual air raids happening. She opted to hide in the attic instead, which is just the most unsafe place to hide. But (laughs) I... Right. To hide at a higher level in your own house so as to fall from a greater height and (laughs) truly die in the collapse of what is an awful thing. But again, the the humor of it is what I remember. And the drawing I made for this I think fifth grade assignment was a hillside with a bunch of fire and planes and bombs dropping and a cave with a bunch of people, but also a tiny stick figure woman in the attic of a house. And that's the drawing I presented for this assignment. <laughs> and, and that is sort of where the chapter three story comes from. Mm. I think you uh, note That there is maybe something more abstract, or I call it an Easter egg, that there is a bear and a tiger that Mm -hmm. appears, which I think we've spoiled with photographs anyway. So there's a bear (laughs) and a tiger. And in Korean mythology, the the sort of human origin myth comes from a bear and a tiger who were tasked to eat garlic and mung root or something else, but definitely garlic in a cave for an indefinite period of time by the god of the heavens or who I call sky king uh, colloquially in my play. And when uh, they're doing this, the tiger gives up and says, this is absurd or gets scared or leaves the cave, but the bear stays and keeps eating garlic and whatever this other ingredient was that I've already forgotten. And when the bear emerges from the cave, she be- she's a beautiful woman and the sky king or god of the heavens marries her. And that is where, the human sort of lineage or ancestry is 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 birthed from, and so I have this bear and tiger in this cave, but the cave is during the Korean War. As uh, a woman is trying to escape and and flee south, so that's chapter wow. three. Yeah, <laughs>
0: that's so powerful, and. Thanks. Something something amazing that you you highlight in this play that I really appreciated is the way that people don't really tell stories directly. They're usually talking about something else, and then it comes up. Or you're doing something out, you're doing an activity, and suddenly they like remember something and they mention it, and then a story happens. And and the way that you can't really ask directly for a story, you can't be like, okay, tell me, tell me your trauma, tell me your history. <laughs> it kind right. of like comes about in this like really interesting and surprising way. And I'm, yeah. I'm curious, like what made you want to explore themes of interge- intergenerational trauma and like the way that we tell stories to each other in a way that information is passed down?
2: Sure. That's a great question that I hope the play
0: <laughs> is
2: somehow scratching the surface at. It's something I'm curious about in my own life Because, as I mentioned, I don't have much biological family to speak of. And and what was exemplified through my mother, who with age perhaps is more forthcoming with her history, but growing up, I felt a slight remove from or an inability to access, or perhaps also that self-hatred I mentioned before, and a lack of curiosity in that, because I resented not being a, a white, blonde hair, blue eyed, red... Blooded American, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And so I I choose to ask now in this play what what family I may come from or what family means and how we create family and are are also born into family and, and how those definitions can vary person to person, especially when they come from an immigrant background. But even if not, that there are things that people go through and not everyone has therapy or the tools to communicate what they have experienced. And I have often found with my own personal experience, but also many folks around me, that you learn a recipe of a family dish and maybe you get a snippet of a grandmother's story or you you get passed down Uh, an old jacket or a purse or a mink coat and that contains some bit of history that you never would have learned of otherwise and what's tragic is when family members are lost and that's when you encounter these artifacts and the hope is how to promote perhaps if not healthier then at least some more communication and I believe some of this comes through this Trojan horse act of Tell me something else that's not actually about the pain and does that help you talk about it? And that could Mm. be sports or that could be nature or that could be, um, you know, an innocuous memory rather than the actual source of trauma and all of that to say, because I ultimately believe we have to talk about it or when we hold on to it, there's this joke in Korean culture, because there's stomach cancer and liver cancer is rather high in East Asian um, populations. And a joke in Korean culture is that because they hold on to all of their grief and anger, it, it literally affects your gut. And this is how it manifests. And that's what I don't want. And I, I wonder how to purge ourselves of that kind of inheritance. And I believe that that to actually address it, in whatever form you're able to communicate it, maybe is the healthier way. There's this other word in Korean called han that is so hard to define and translate that even I will bastardize it in this attempt. But there's something about extreme grief or extreme anger. And and the anger is a, a sort of righteous indignation because Korea at times was occupied by Japan or China by other forces and not always left alone to be their own independent entity and and have their own voice or language and let alone tongue or ability to spell their own names the way they wanted to, that there's this inexpressible and incredible grief and anger that is in the Korean people. And that that when you express yourself in that way, everyone recognizes it as Han. And yet I don't want that to be something that continues. I think it's fascinating that, that this population can identify it as such, but I I don't think that that makes it any better or I guess to have a name for it can be healing, but wouldn't the real healing be in getting rid of it or being able to release it? And, and I hope my play is some sort of attempt at that. Uh, I... Yeah, I'm just trying there in some way to do that and in a queer way as well.
0: Yeah. um Well, you don't know this, but you've given me a wonderful segue into my next question. Um, <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> there's so many really, really great references to food in this play. Like, I, I left mm. this play hungry. Um, oh, and <laughs> <laughs> I think that the practice of, you know, the tradition of sharing food together and, you know, with family and friends and, you know chosen family and things like that you know the sharing of food I'm curious if there's a dish that either you know your mom or a a chosen family member friend makes that like you always look forward to is there like Mm. something that's kind of in the back of your mind like oh so-and-so is making that I'm gonna be there
2: (laughs) totally yeah yeah we joke whenever we do a, a piece of Asian American theater or if there's a cast or crew with more Asian Americans than not, that there'll be the best snacks around in rehearsal. And it's true. We just have always uh, supplied everyone with candy and snacks from we're really close to H Mart. So that that helps. I've given H Mart so much of my money at this point, <laughs> just trying to grab fistfuls of candy and, and mochis and pups and stuff the play contains a lot of korean food because i think i won't be alone in saying that a lot of korean parents perhaps aren't able to express themselves emotionally or intimately but the act of cooking the act of providing food on the table to not be hungry is is a huge act of love in and of itself to to prove that someone won't experience the hunger that our parents or grandparents might have experienced or did experience is their way of saying, I love you, or I am taking care of you, or I see you, or I am here for you. And so that's why I think Korean food is always uh, very important to me. And, and hopefully, I think, I, I love that you see that it is a, a part of the DNA of the show. <laughs> um, a dish I mentioned very briefly in chapter two that one of the comfort women discusses is called gorygom bon tang, which is an oxtail soup that I love so much that the Billions writers once asked me, oh, we want to mention a, a Korean dish that would have a sense memory experience for your character, what would it be? And I said that same dish and they wrote it into the show. And it's, it's a type of meat that you wouldn't normally eat eat i think it's it's like i'm not denigrating this food dish chicken feet is out of you have to eat everything you know what we did with like wings and and versus the actual um chicken breast like how we how poverty and how necessity changes cuisine i think is a huge part of many folks's cultures and backgrounds and so That oxtail soup, I imagine, isn't a delicacy, but to me became a delicacy because my mother would buy these bones with meat on them, soak them in water overnight so as to let all the blood out, dump that water, do this soak again, and then boil it slowly overnight with garlic and cloves, and then chill that so as to skim the fat off the top and then boil it again it's this days and days long process that changes the smell of and the chemistry of your home and after that you get this incredible broth and and have to eat it with a spoon and your hands and and that there's this joy in sucking the marrow out of the bone that That is, I'm sure, so not fine dining, even though I my mom and I laugh now whenever we see bone marrow at a restaurant, I think that's so Korean and you would make fun of us for the way we do it. But you, you know, like slice the bone so perfectly with some (laughs) electric saw and like put butter and um, chives on it and and go crazy. And we're just we're just going at it with our mouths and hands so yeah. that would be my dish um uh to to share an answer yeah. to your question
0: awesome yeah. and i mean it's it's just so wonderful that like somebody sitting in the audience could could hear that and be like oh now i'm hungry like now, yeah. now i want to talk about yeah. that
2: initially um, i had written it in english and ralph my director said won't you why don't you just say that in korean and i said well i don't want to alienate those who don't speak korean and he said you have to write for both the Asian and the non-Asian audience, and you get the gift of inviting both, so why not speak to both? And so I try to straddle that with Korean dishes in the Korean names, and also some descriptives that hopefully help people go on the sense memory journey of it all.
1: You know, that's a great segue, Daniel, talking about the different audiences, uh, to ask a little bit about this play in relation to Chinese Lady, because I think the Chinese Lady, obviously you didn't write that play, but you were you helped create. I think you helped create that role with Lloyd. Is that right? You were the original production.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lloyd, Lloyd says the
1: Chinese Chinese Lady, the most produced play of the last season around the country, yes. as far as as far as our, our our data showed. Um, and you did it at the Public and Barrington Stage and a couple other places. Um, and my the original Mai Yi production too is as, as, as well. Right. Um, and that show is very much as a lot of Lloyd's writing is very much about the white gaze and about perceptions mm-hmm. of Asians in particularly in American society. Right. Um, and a certain consciousness about stereotypes, you know, and playing up, playing them up to, to sort of show their ugliness in some ways. Um, this play is not that, obviously, you, you're, you're not Lloyd. Um, this, But I'm interested in what Ralph's note about reaching both audiences. I'd, mm-hmm. This feels very much a play on your own terms, on your community's own terms. It feels like it's legible and accessible to all, right? There's a place for oh, all the rest of us at the table. That. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, and it's also, it's also, there's, a, there's, some effort on the part of the audience to keep up which i think is a great a great um it's a challenging play in some ways you know to to emotionally and 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 visually to keep up with um mm-hmm. in a great way in a great but, but i just wanted to ask about that 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 sense of who who you feel you're writing for and, and who who is who is welcomed um at the at the table to use the food metaphor yeah. um, um and, and the extent to which you do think oh well that's not going to play with this community or that community. Um, mm. And how, I guess, I guess I also want to ask a little bit about the, how the Chinese lady might have influenced your, uh, your writing or your, your thinking about these things. Totally. Yeah.
2: I, I am forever indebted and inspired by Lloyd Tsa and, mm. and his first or one of his first plays, American Hwangap was handed to me by a professor in my last year of undergrad by, um, either Kim Rubenstein or Joanna Grunhut, who were both incredible directors. And, and they, you know, on one hand, it seems racist. And on the other hand, they were just saying, look, there's a, there's a Korean American (laughs) family story happening in New York city right now. You have to read this. And, and that really opened up my eyes because all I thought I had at that time was M. Butterfly by David Henry Mm Wong. And I have a, naturally deep voice and every time I was young I, when I was younger and asked to audition every single audition they'd say can you just pitch your voice higher and I <laughs> I'd try but it just doesn't go past a certain <laughs> decibel level and so they uh, to encounter Lloyd's work was gave me permission to move to New York, New York City and to believe that that I would have a space here mm. and and what my company stands for that there's this theater company that only produces new works by Asian Americans. That meant that, oh, there is space for me that national Asian American theater company exists that pan-Asian repertory existed, that, that there would be some small corner where I could fit was a huge source of light or a, a light at the end of, a, of what I knew would be a long tunnel in, in, mm anyone who moves to any larger city in pursuit of their impossible dreams and in this art form that we've all dedicated our lives to. And so that is my, my love of Lloyd. And to encounter the Chinese lady and its passage of time, of course, is a huge um, mirror in this and that he is unafraid to move an audience and his characters through time without need to root itself in uh, or care about what does this mean in 100% realism? And instead saying, go on this journey that um, I am forever in love with 100 years of solitude. And you just go on this family's journey through generations and the magical realism there. And Lloyd has a play about or that also includes Charles Francis Chan's story and yellow face. And, and there's multiple time periods and multiple characters and multiple tones. And I just think of how fearless it is in what it's, it's, it's all putting into one story and Wong kids, his, his play for young audiences in La Mama had such absurd and impossible humor. And it's playwrights like that, like, Sarah rules stage directions in passion play or in clean house that have always inspired me and Lauren Yee with King of the Yees that, that you can do things that feel so magical and large in scope and, and that this art form will figure out how to tell it and that there will be a way to do it. Even if you think, or even if you've purposely re- written something impossible i've gone off on a tangent and now i've forgotten your no, no that's, question, that, that's but, fascinating it that explains a lot of by all these playwrights no, it,
1: it, it sort of it sort of explains a lot of the aesthetic choices in your play and just sort of the boldness of it the jumping around in time and then this the thread that pulls all together again no spoilers um i do see that sort of i guess magic realism is one term since you mentioned 100 uh, years of solitude is is one way to describe it um no i was i was specifically asking about that note that that Ralph Pena, the director. Given oh, right, about, about the audiences. About, yeah, the totally, audiences and yeah. and all that,
2: yeah. Yeah, I think my, my slight thesis there is if you look at any war set not in America, the main characters are always still Americans and not the country of origin in which the war is taking place. So whether it is in the Middle East or Vietnam or Korea or, you know, Japan, that we always seem to center the white guy who's going to war and his family he's left behind and his wife and children and are meant to have more compassion for that. And yet the country is being blown to bits in the background and we don't seem to give the same level of empathy or center any of those people. And so I did set out in writing this to say, I have yet to see a Korean war piece. That's actually about the Koreans there. Hmm. And I didn't know much about the, times of Japanese occupation in Korea other than this sort of at times deep-seated resentment that I don't think is a forever thing but of my mother's generation certainly existed and my mother spoke Japanese and Korean and I never thought to ask why and a large part of it was because in order to have Opportunities in the workforce. She needed to speak Japanese more than she needed to speak Korean. And I was young and dumb and never interrogated that. And instead would encounter Min Jin Lee's pachinko later and you know see this Apple TV show and think, oh, that's part of my history. And I never even knew that. And and so I I did I did set out to write this play and say, I will center the Koreans and In addition to that, I will center queer people because Mm -hmm. we also, in our narratives of history, um, push the people in the margins out so that the majority feels comfortable and, Mm -hmm. and the clean sanitized hero gets to have gets to hold the trophy and I can't. I can't possibly believe there weren't queer people in existence in all of these history narratives that we have. So I, as the queer being that I am, will choose to center those folks and say they can also have generations and generations of stories to tell and that we can inherit that and find some sort of uh, gift in that and not just trauma, but, uh, but survival, resilience and and hope somewhere in there because we must have queer ancestors. Right. And that, that, perhaps the religious impact of these wars and missionaries successful attempts have, have, have erased that. And hmm. how do I write that, write them back in?
1: I wish we had a photo, although it would be a spoiler of John, Nor- John Sh- Norman Schneider's, oh, uh, yes. King <laughs> uh, uh, Ali, by I, Fong, just incredible. That's just amazing. I, 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 yeah, that was an amazing, I, I, <laughs> I I was confused because the the, the, the the program had your picture in it. I thought, oh, is, is Daniel going to be in this? Um, oh, I yeah. Thought, oh, is, is a, tell me a little bit about, is it a relief not to be in this show or do you, are you oh. understudying the parts or no?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I am understudying out of necessity. Okay. And because I knew I would, or they had invited me to be in every rehearsal, which I know is a gift for a playwright. Right. And they also knew that I was an actor. And so they had floated this idea of, you want to understudy Sanaz tusi had to go on for english or sam gold right. had to go on for the scottish play it's <laughs> right. it's a, a sad reality of our times right that's now right. that's right and and for a small company uh, they were also saying let us gift you this other paycheck so as to continue to compensate for your time and mai hmm. does this incredible thing of paying way more than larger off-broadway theaters do to try to reach whatever that living wage is and and they they were trying to ensure that I was taken care of as an artist in that capacity Mm. because I think playwrights don't often get paid for their time in the room they get paid a lump sum for their project and maybe some box office percentage but Mm. not for for all the hours you put in 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 the physical space and so Mm. here was a way they were taking care of me there and yet my worst nightmare will be going on stage. You know, I have the actor's nightmare of being an understudy to a show I don't know the track of. And I have a dear friend who's our assistant director, Clinton Sherwood, who is a a white male who understudied every white male track in Book of Mormon. And I believe ended up playing almost all of them in the national tours or on Broadway. And, And to be friends with him over the years, I just think, that is my worst nightmare to, to wake up <laughs> or 30 minutes before a show be told you're going to be doing this track. And that means you have to do these costume changes, this choreography, and remember this maze of this pattern to get through the maze. And then the very next show to do a completely different pattern in that same maze. I don't know how how folks do that. So understudies are the greatest heroes of the world. I don't know how I'm memorizing these lines other than the fact that I wrote them, I guess. <laughs> and maybe having watched them and given notes on them and 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 lived in the space, it'll come somewhere psychically. But I actually pray that I'll never touch that stage other than for a talk back,
1: you know. When you've given them complicated tracks to do, because as, as we talked about, there are five chapters and there's about seven actors. Is that right? Seven total? Six? Uh, yes, yeah. seven actors. Seven and actors. All of them
2: playing multiple characters. Yeah. Well, and the, that was yeah, an intentional thing too, because I feel like Asian actors are never given the chance to play multiple. We're always told you can do one thing, and and that's your service to the story. And I thought, right, these, these are talented people. Let's let them show all the different facets of their, all the different tools they have in their bag. So right, right. It's Intentional and impossible, and art. My designers, I'm sure, hate me and love me for, for making this Herculean task for all of them. The show is beautiful. If I, this costume I, designer has to so sew more snaps onto a costume, she's gonna kill me, I'm sure. <laughs> I did the projection, the projection designer. Could you shout them out because they he, do amazing um, work in this? Yeah, yes. I have written stage directions like a a baby you know balloon pops and and a puddle of red floods the stage or the entire stage lights on fire or yeah. a, a giant red lotus appears or, or a snake things descend from the, stage, the heavens yeah, yeah totally yeah. and yeah. ye fearlessly projected that onto our stage (laughs) and and sae created a set that feels so stark and minimal and also full of magic and possibility that they're working together with our lighting designer oliver wasson just they're creating magic and i i am forever indebted to them that that i wrote something in a in a I don't know, in a huff or in a, a stubborn fashion. Of I'm going to write impossible, and I believe someone will make it happen. And they, I'm sure, agonized, and yet still made it happen, with with Ralph at the helm's yelling at me, "Why did you write this? How this is impossible? <laughs> you can't do this!" And then, and then turning around and doing it. And so I'm, I'm so grateful to them.
1: Yeah. Well, it's just, it's no shade on on the, on the sort of straightforward realistic immigrant family plays that are no, that there no, are but this yeah. you did not write that play and it's fascinating what you did write instead i don't know just do you, do you know the play hanako by uh chung mi kim
2: i don't I'm So don't, i'm it was, sad to say i don't
1: no no it's well, it's about 20 20 20 years old it was at east west players and it was about the comfort women and it was mm. uh and that was controversial because again it was a, it was a topic that wasn't in 1999 wasn't that well known or talked about right and it was some concern about how it would go over in different communities, American, Japanese American communities and so on. And I just wondered if you'd heard of that. Um, I have a big question about the state of theater and Asian American representation. We talked before the, uh, before we went on about, there's a New York times piece about Mm -hmm. how many plays by Asian Americans were on stages in New York or about to go on stage when COVID hit. Course. And then of course a wave of anti-Asian hate came with mm-hmm. came with that terrible. And I just it's a it's a heavy topic, but I wondered if you do you feel how do you feel about the, the state of theater? You've you, obviously you've been through all these great playwrighting playwriting programs, you've been in the trenches of working in theater as just a theater worker, but also as an Asian American theater worker. What's your sort of state of the state of the state of the nation?
2: Yeah. <laughs> state of the theater thoughts. I will opt to first celebrate what's happening mm-hmm. currently. And as this is a live stream to have Aya Ogawa's play, The Nosebleed happening at Lincoln Center and Clarence Ku's play On That Day in Amsterdam happening primary stages at East 59. Mm-hmm. And to have not one, but two Asian American playwrights programmed at Playwrights Horizons this year, Julia and Mia Chung. And that Lloyd Sa is gonna have another play at Atlantic Theater Company. And K pop is going to Broadway and offered $19 tickets yesterday. Like that mm. kind of access is so wonderful and amazing. And Wolf Play will be coming back uh, yeah. by Hansel Jung. So, so I want to say that, that while times have been dark, there is this people have opened the doors, people have banged them open, people have really advocated for themselves or have found advocates in these communities, and and they are getting their, their chance now. And I, I want to forever celebrate and highlight and promote that as much as I can in my tiny sphere of influence. So that feels like some sort of coming back to where we were with Celine Song at New York Theatre Workshop and Suicide Forest is happening. At, that was supposed to be remounted by my theatre company. And Wolf Play, the first time around, got mm-hmm. shuttered, I think, before a first preview ever even happened. That 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 many plays could occur at one time. Mm-hmm. That uh, Leah Nanaka Winkler and I were texting the other day. And we were saying how it's so wonderful that there are so many projects by Asian Americans happening, and so frustrating because our favorite actors are all booked and blessed, and that means they <laughs> can't do the projects we want them to do. Like my uh, many cast members who had developed this piece, Once Upon a Korean Time, were just too too busy. Shannon Tayo and Sasha Diamond are going to do Peerless by Chihe Park, and. Shannon's busy. Uh, Cindy Chung just did Golden Shield by Felicia, Felicia and Julie King at MTC and is going to do Playwrights risings. Mia Chung's play Catch as Catch Can. And she said, I have to spend some time with my family. I'm so sorry I can't do your play in between here. <laughs> Gina Yee booked uh, a recurring on The Resident. And you think, great, I'm so happy my friends are working. Gosh darn it, I wish they were working on my play, but <laughs> good. I want my friends to be busy. I want them to be uh, given the platforms they deserve and the and and to have um, the depths of their talent showcased. So I I'm heading toward I'm just shining the light on the positive because the negative is still, you know, I don't wear headphones on the subway because I I am trying to be hyper aware. Uh, multiple members of the team working on Once Upon a Korean Time have had hate crimes during this rehearsal and performance process alone, as including last night. And when we did Chinese Lady at the Public, members of the Chinese Lady team and of the SUF's team experienced anti-Asian hate around the public theater and on their commute. And to have that be the side-by-side reality is not new to us in the community, but we're grateful that there is some recognition outside of it now and and so then the answer is what what next and and maybe this is the most naive or or overly optimistic side of me but what's next is to continue to share the humanity of these people and these theaters and plays and stories are hopefully doing just that and 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 i hate that we have to advocate for our humanity but at least Mm. We are able to do so, so as to remind folks of how we are more alike than we are different, and the differences should be celebrated, not feared or attacked.
1: Yeah, I don't want to end on that. Note. you know my, my friend, my friend Kui Wen, uh, doesn't want to come to New York. He doesn't want to visit New York. Right. right now. He doesn't feel safe he, yeah. here.
2: Uh, and that's totally valid. I still watch our elders firmly planted in the middle of a two-track subway platform or holding onto the railing of the stairway. And that is a sad but very present reality. My neighbor got spit on outside of a Whole Foods. You think that's the bougiest grocery store we have or one of them. And yet that was where an attack as as small and yet as devastating as that could occur. And And, you know, Shannon, the lead of the Chinese lady and I used to joke whenever we were asked what was the difference between doing it in 2018 versus 2022, and one of the main differences was we didn't have to prove to the audience that it could be hard to be an Asian body in America, that we didn't have to convince someone in a talkback that we too could be a victim of a hate crime or a race-based attack. And, And so to hear that the Chinese lady Commissioned by my by uh, can be one of the most produced plays in the in the country. Hopefully, that means that that is reaching all of these other communities that get to say, "Oh, that's me on stage," or "Oh, let us remember that this is part of our American history." And how do we do better, knowing that this is st- this is very much a, a part of the DNA of American history? And what do we do again to undo that trauma or to to speak about it and and shine a light on it and and then release it and make sure it doesn't follow us for generations to come. That's well, what I think hope my little play does too.
1: Yeah. Well, I think so. I, you know, East West players and Ma Yi and your work is part of the, the DNA of America as well. So I don't I don't I take that I don't take that for granted, but I think it's something that I take as as gospel. I I we only have one minute left and I want to just ask you the billions questions because I'm a big oh, fan sure. of the show. <laughs> no, I don't. I just basically like you're going to start shooting again. Season seven, I guess. Right. Season seven later this fall. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, is this the kind of thing where people ask you for stock tips
2: uh, uh, <laughs> do, when, when they run into you? I mean- They do, they do. And I am unfortunately very ignorant other than my partner works for Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure. And okay. and I, you know, I don't think it's bad for me to plug them, right? So well, I don't their know. ticker I, is I, Hossie I, and they work on climate positive solutions. So that's my sure. only, <laughs> but that's a totally biased thing of me helping my partner out, right? But is, that. is it the
1: kind of, have have you to me it's like you you're you must be on star trek saying you know science fiction science science fiction jargon yeah like this short all this stuff about shorts and hedges do do you do you know what you're talking about or is there like a explainer on set who who explains all yeah in our
2: early seasons we had Turney duff who wrote um oh i'm forgetting Turney's book book right now something about I'm bad. Google Tony Duff. You'll see his book. Yeah, sure. sure. He was um, on set, and he is still available. He's a dear friend, and and sometimes I'll text him and I'll say, "What am I saying right yeah. now?" <laughs> Please translate this to me. And 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 then my partner will get offended because once we started dating, he'd say, "Why aren't you asking me this?" Well, he doesn't ask me about. You know, tips on whatever he's working on. So I try to keep church and state separate. And (laughs) and the writers are so amazing, and they're very you know from our executives Brian and David down uh, are very able to say here's what's actually being spoken versus what you're you know saying in the lingo, which you know the doctors on Grey's Anatomy or uh, the resident have to know that jargon too, right? And and we just hope we're making it sound as human and accessible as possible. (laughs) right obviously the, the real
1: stories we're following are the interpersonal ones uh among the among the folks uh, including including ben kim i just ben and tuck i think deserve their own spinoff but you know that's just oh a...
2: <laughs> from your lips to god's <laughs> ears <laughs> um, i love those characters
1: they're they're great um anyway so we look forward to that um daniel it's been such a pleasure to talk to you uh that that resonant voice you're talking about i could listen to all day <laughs> uh, uh yeah, so it's been great to talk to you. Uh, if you're in New York City, go see Once Upon a Korean Time at it's op- It opens next week, I guess. At La Mama. At La Mama, downtown. Um, hopefully it'll be on stages everywhere in the coming seasons. Daniel, thanks so much yeah, for your time. Yeah, so
0: exciting. Thank you so Thank much. Thank
2: you. Thank you for coming to see it and for holding this space. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Take care, everybody.